Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. In the past month, we saw the return of some of TV's best shows, so we wanted to remind you about a Recapables feed, where our staff breaks down current episodes from your favorites like Game of Thrones, Killing Eve, and Billions. Also, make sure to check in each week to hear special one-off recaps on shows like The Bold Type, Very Cavallari, Cobra Kai, and more. So as you keep up with your top shows, tune in to the Recapables feed each week on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Ringer NBA show. This is the Corner 3. My name is Kevin O'Connor. And back in Ringer Studios in Los Angeles, it's Ringer Associate Editor, Danny Chow. I'm here. Let's do this. Calling in from Dallas, Texas, it's Ringer Staff Writer, Jonathan Charks. What's up, guys? I'm excited to talk uh, second round of the playoffs. Hell yeah, man. It's been good so far. We're recording this at 12.14 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Last night or this morning, a new podcast went into your feed from John Gonzalez and Haley O'Shaughnessy, which was an instant reaction to last night's Warriors win over the Rockets. So we're going to get started with the Eastern Conference playoffs before heading over to the West and then talking a little bit about the NBA draft at the end. Last night, the Bucks beat the Celtics 123-102 to to tie the series 1-1. to before the series returns to Boston on Friday for game three, Bucks were up three midway through the third quarter, up 30, 74 to 71 before unleashing a 29 to two run to win the game. Giannis had 29 points. Middleton had 28. Bledsoe had 21 and played excellent defense, which was one of the big reasons Milwaukee had such a dominant performance charts on Monday and Tuesday. They talked about how they're not going to make any changes to their scheme, but you wrote on the ringer.com about how they should switch more. And that's exactly what they did when usually they have their big man dropping in the paint, but instead they started mixing up their coverages with drops and hedges and peelbacks and switchers. And that seemed to fluster the Celtics sharks. Yeah, that was definitely a nice adjustment by Buttonholzer. Just to say nothing and actually do it. That was good. Uh, I mean, which I thought to me really. Galaxy brain level adjustments to say, oh, we're not going to do anything. Ah, no, we're not going to. Because his whole history in the past has been to like just stick with his plan no matter what. But you know, he realizes now he's got Giannis on his team, time to win a championship, can't messing around. But what uh jumped out to me in this, he only played Brooke Lopez um 24 minutes. In those 24 minutes, Lopez was minus 12, and Milwaukee won by 21 points. <laughs> so that just shows you like this slower big man in a series like this is just really hard to stay on the keep on the floor. Well, let's talk about that. So they made the change and it was effective. Why was it so effective? Well, I think they're just cutting off like driving lanes. Like if they're ha- they're playing more mobile bigs. I mean, there was a couple times where Giannis jumped out on Kyrie. It's like, oh, it's a holder from ball game. When you're like, as opposed to like driving at Brook Lopez with space, and then it, and then instead you got Giannis at the three point line. Like the floor is just so different. Like your defense is more versatile. You can rotate quicker. I mean, there's just more ways to move around. So, like, well, the other thing was crazy. So, in this series, when Lopez is on the floor, Kyrie is plus 21.9 in 49 minutes. When Lopez is off, Kyrie is minus 29 in 23 minutes. Obviously, it's a very small sample size, but I think that's a real thing right there. Right. And and when we're looking at this game and we're looking at the adjustments that the Bucks made, I think Kyrie obviously having, you know, one of the worst games of his uh, career as a Celtic uh, really stands out because you know the, the Bucks really kind of keyed in on him and and threw a lot of bodies at him, uh, a lot of longer, bigger players forcing him left. It, it was pretty much everything went according to plan for for the Bucks. 
speaking of Kyrie, first of all, he had a horrible overall game, poor defense, inaccurate passes, and then scoring the ball. I thought he did a lot of settling. There was, there's one play that comes to mind in the third quarter when Milwaukee was in the middle of their run where they did switch a screen and, and, and Kyrie Irving had Ursan Ilyasova on him one-on-one. And you would think that is a complete advantage for Boston, and normally it should be. And yet what he did was he drove into maybe 12, 15 feet from the rim and took a, a fadeaway step back jumper with Ilyasova and Brooke Lopez on him when he could have easily kicked out to Aaron Baines or Gordon Hayward, and they could have swung the ball around for an open three-pointer. I thought Milwaukee's switching scheme made put more pressure on Boston. But Boston also didn't do themselves any favors with the amount of settling that they did. Well, swing it back to Aaron Baines. I'm not sure how valuable that's going to be. I mean, to me, <laughs> swing, swing to Aaron Baines might not help you, but swing one more yeah. pass to J- to Gordon Hayward could. I mean, or to me, this series to more drive and kick opportunities as well. You're seeing the value of Horford when Horford's in when Horford's out. Boston's a totally different team. I, I wonder how many minutes he can play in this series. Like, can he get to like 35, 40, 42 minutes by the end of the series? Yeah, Horford obviously is, is critical to what Boston does. Even if he's not necessarily getting a touch, the spacing he provides is critical. One of the other things you mentioned in your article, Charks, was using Giannis more often at the five. They didn't really do that a whole lot more in game two compared to game one. In game one, the Bucks, uh, Giannis played 18 minutes with Lopez, 17 minutes without him. And then in game two, it was 16 minutes with Lopez, 16 minutes without him um, with Giannis at the five. And that had mixed results. I thought the switching overall was a positive, but there were a couple of times in the first half where with those switches, they could post a larger player on a smaller player. I I think for the most part, though, if you're looking towards game three, Boston just needs to do something different than they've done all season. Like Milwaukee all season, they dropped their pick and roll coverages and they abandoned that for the most part in game two by mixing it up. They went away from what they know. And with Boston all season long, they have shown a complete willingness to just settle for mid range jumpers instead of forcing it inside, trying to get to the, to the line, trying to get layups or kicking out more often for the threes instead of taking mid range jumpers. Cause as many threes as Boston takes, they can do more. They can still take more threes uh, with that Irving shot that I mentioned earlier being a prime example. I think Danny heading into game three, that's one of the things Boston will have to do in order to help themselves against Milwaukee's different scheme. Yeah, and I, I've been thinking about you know the the early minutes of the game where uh, Miritich was, was playing at the three and he kind of got roasted uh, to start off. He got killed. He got killed. And by the end of the game, we're looking at, you know, Miritich and Ilyasova, both, you know, plus 21, 22 in the game. How much longer can they sustain that against, you know, the the Celtics's, you know, li- lineup of, of, you know, multifaceted wings? I'm, I'm not sure. Isn't that the weird part? I thought Boston came out of the gates ready to attack Miritich. They went at him every single possession, got him into foul trouble immediately. And in a way, that almost turned out to be a blessing for Milwaukee that Miritich did get into foul trouble because anytime he was back, Boston didn't seem to continue attacking him. It's sort of like they forgot about their game plan heading in. Right. The two guys I'm watching in this series, I mean, one, Middleton, we talked about earlier. And like the way Middleton plays is kind of the way Boston's wing should be playing. Like, Middleton attacks the three-point line. He's just waiting for you to drop a sp- foot off him, and he's pulling up a pull-up threes. And that's just so valuable, especially against a team we have, when you have Giannis inside. Like, Boston's wings really should be doing more of that. Instead of pulling up for 18 feet, pulling up for three. And that would open up so much for their offense. 
And the guy I think for Boston I want is Gordon Hayward. Should he be starting? Like, it might be time for him to start playing big minutes because he's the guy who can really attack some of these lesser uh, Milwaukee defenders more than Marcus Morris. Hayward had a horrible game, though. Uh, I, I think with Hayward, he's he was up towards the end of the season. He had some ups against Indiana, and game one was fine. But in game two, he looked back to being his passive, timid selves on drives. He he had one play that I remember where Chris Weber on the call was like, Gordon Hayward and pick and roll, always special. And then Ursan <laughs> Ilyasova took a charge where, where it was like so clear that's what was about to happen. Ilyasova led the NBA in charges taken this season. He's proven to be a solid positional defender within uh, the Bucks scheme. Uh, but Hayward did, did not seem prepared for that. I thought Hayward had a passive game and it looked more like he did far too often this season. But to your point, Sharks, I think with Boston shot selection, Hayward and Tatum specifically are the two guys who do a lot of settling when theoretically they are players that should be able to get to the bucket more. They're players that can pull up from three instead of mid-range. And both those guys have been very inefficient in those isolations this year, which they're going to probably have a lot of moving forward in the series. If Milwaukee continues doing switching and with Tatum, like you were someone prior to the draft who didn't love him. I'm someone who did love him. but what we've seen this series against Milwaukee are the flaws that you were extremely worried about. And rightfully so, so far in the playoffs, Tatum is shooting one of six on layups from isolations, three of nine from mid range and only O of three from three. And it's not as much the one for six on layups that I'm worried about. It's the shot distribution, the lack of threes, lack of ability to get to the basket that is concerning for him in the series. Yeah. I mean, I think for sure those two wings, Hay- Hayward and Tatum and one are a small adjustment Milwaukee made in game one. They had a lot of Pat Connaughton on Hay- Hayward. And Hayward's five for six in the, against him in the series. In game two, they played more of Middleton on him. Hayward's 0 for 4 against Middleton. And I think if you start Hayward, it's easier to find easier matchups for him. Whereas if he's a second unit guy, Milwaukee can put their best defender on him. If you're starting Hayward instead of Morris, there's really nowhere to hide it, like Miritich or any, like whoever the bad defender from Milwaukee is. Right. And I think that's something to watch too is does Malcolm Brogdon come back? Because he could be a huge, huge plus for Milwaukee in this if he comes back in game three. Brogdon is somebody who would also better enable Milwaukee to play however they want to play in terms of their lineups. If they want to put Giannis at the five, I think Brogdon makes it a, quite a bit easier for you to do that. Yeah, with the size, with the the secondary playmaking ability. I, one thing that I'm I'm worried about is, okay, what does this Bucks team look like in Game Three when and if Chris Middleton and Eric Bledsoe don't have incredible games and when the Bucks don't end up, you know, setting a franchise record for threes made in a postseason. Like, how much can Giannis affect, you know, the game when his outside shooters aren't quite there? Is it just me or can Giannis do even more if he needs to, right? I mean, like Middleton and Bledsoe were great in, in game two, but it, I think Giannis, there's still more to him that he can give in the series that he hasn't had to give, uh, especially if they have to run more pick and roll. They ran a little bit more in right. game two than they did in game one. But if you're using Giannis either as the ball handler or as a screener, the things that he can do as a role man, either scoring the ball with power or finesse or being able to play make off the short roll. I think if the Bucks need more from Giannis, they can get more from Giannis. Well, I think that's where having uh, Brogdon be huge because if Brogdon's coming off that screen, you have to worry about the pull-up shot. Whereas if it's exactly. Bledsoe coming off the screen, then whatever. And I mean, as I talk about my article, Giannis has only played 32 minutes a game in the series right now. Like Giannis should be playing 40-45. There have been two blowouts, but that's how you can give more right there. Like this man is playing on the floor all the time. He's just too valuable to ever be on the bench. 
did game one or two change either of your thoughts about the series moving forward or, or is this going to continue to be a series of adjustments where now we see Brad Stevens counterpunch in game three? I think so. I think you'll see. So they moved off Lopez and I think now we'll see, can they attack Miritich and Ilyasova? Can they find those new weak spots for Milwaukee? I think that's the adjustment for Boston going forward. Game three for Boston. Milwaukee will be on Friday night. I'll be at that uh, based in Boston for the next couple of weeks or months. Um, looking forward to that one. Moving on, we got the Sixers Raptors game three on Thursday night. Uh, Toronto lost game two after Philadelphia made a number of different adjustments, putting Joel Embiid on Pascal Siakam, Ben Simmons on Kawhi Leonard. Danny, your Raptors lost game two. Are you losing hope for them this series? Oh, no. I, I think the, the adjustments they made are, I, I think the adjustments that Philly made in game two were very sound. I think. Obviously, you needed to have Simmons on Kawhi. Kawhi's arguably what one of the two, three hottest players in the postseason right now. You need a guy who has the length, who has the athleticism and the size to kind of just make life difficult for him. I thought the the most intriguing uh, like adjustment that the Sixers made was putting Embiid on Siakam. Uh, it, it kind of reminded me of what the the entire NBA was trying to do with Giannis during the regular season towards the end of it uh, by putting a bigger athletic big man on Giannis to kind of close a little bit of the gaps and 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 squeeze out a little bit of the air um, in terms of what they were able to do out in space. Uh, but uh, no, I, I think I think Nick Nurse has some adjustments up his sleeve and I think Charks would very happily talk about them. <laughs> yeah, I feel like he does a really good job of adjusting quickly. He tried a few things in the start of the second half. They went away from late, but I like putting Siakam on Jimmy Butler, giving even more size on Jimmy. Jimmy's kind of their primary creator right now with Simmons being shut down a bit. And then you kind of just hide green on Tobias. I think with Embiid, with Embiid on Siakam, you got to move Siakam off the ball, have him cutting. Right. Embiid doesn't want to chase him around the floor at all. And I think that is very exploitable. The thing that I'm looking at this series, like Toronto's bench has disappeared. Really, neither one of these teams' benches played well. And it feels like whoever can get good, good stuff from their 6th, 7th, 8th men can have a huge advantage going forward. And even in Game 2, Greg Monroe is the star off the bench for the Sixers. <laughs> and That's what played, it's come to. He's playing well. <laughs> and he played for the three other teams in the, in the Eastern Conference Final. In the Eastern Conference right now, he played for Toronto, played for Milwaukee. Wow, that's for right. As well. yeah. it's, it's unbelievable. And he got hurt in that game. Um, and I haven't seen any word on his availability for Game 3. But it kind of matters uh, right now. <laughs> it, it, it does matter, which is saying a lot about both the benches or for both of these teams. And, and this is with Toronto. That was one of their strengths, strengths before. They are a team that now has a weak bench. Um, Sergi Baca, the mid-range shot, was so great for him all season long and has failed him. Uh, Norman Powell is fine. Uh, Jody Meeks, it's very odd how he gets that minute-long stint at the end of the the first and third quarters. I do wonder if moving forward in this series, you mentioned the role of Pascal Siakam. Nick Nurse has still gone with that Siakam plus bench players unit um, for short stints during the game. I wonder if moving forward more than he already has, he further ramps up the minutes for Danny Green and Marcus Gasol um, to get a little bit closer to the 40 minutes that Siakam, Kawhi, and Kyle Lowry are all playing. It could be too early for that. We know with Gasol's age and, and, and Green as well, uh, all the, uh, the miles on him. But I do wonder if moving forward with these weak benches, that's something that just he just has to do. I mean, it was also just a, a rock fight in, in game two. Neither team could hit their threes. I think I trust the Raptors to hit their threes a little bit more than the Sixers. But 
yeah, like uh, wh- when you're you're shooting twenty seven percent, and you know Brett Brown was talking before game two about how you know the the Raptors have been the hottest three point shooting team in the league. That was probably a jinx right there. Um, you know, it, it's it's something to to look at. I I think that's something where regression might might favor the Raptors, but I I don't know if if you play Marcus All more. Do you see a way in which he can be, you know, an aggressor? Because I think with Tobias on him, he was what he averaged. He took like one shot with Tobias on him. Yeah, he took six shots total. Was one for six. Uh, I believe. Yeah, it was only the one shot with Tobias. I think, but there were a couple other times they posted him up um, as a means for playmaking as well. Uh, it was interesting. They were they did try to attack that matchup a little bit, um, but didn't result in any production for Toronto. You know what I wonder? Uh, so Van Vliet is one for four in like forty five minutes in this series. We might see some Jeremy Lin. Yeah. I mean, there's room for him to hide him on defense against Philly, and he might give them some secondary playmaking and shooting. Man, they just some need Jeremy some... Lin or some Malcolm Miller, Danny. <laughs> Ooh, Malcolm, Malcolm Miller. Miller. <laughs> now we're talking now we're talking corner three language. Yeah. <laughs> Has speaking of like these injuries that we don't really have like any kind of information on, do we have any thoughts on on OG and, and his comeback? Because I think it was said Eastern Conference Finals, right? Oh, okay. So it was like an emergency appendectomy, so it's like two to three weeks. I don't yeah. know. Oh, I'm seeing there, there this. Was, OG is yeah, not there was close. A report yesterday. Yep, not close to a return. That's not good. According to Nick Nurse, yep, long, long ways away is what Nick Nurse said uh, yesterday, speaking to the Athletic.com, and that obviously would have given Toronto another versatile defender who can hit spot up threes for you at, a, at an average rate, which. OG is is a good player right now. Uh, wouldn't make a significant impact in this series, but having a guy with his defensive versatility would against a team like this with Tobias Harris, with Jimmy Butler, um, could even put him on JJ Redick at times too. Um, both these benches are depleted, um, but it's a top-heavy series. I do wonder with Toronto, one of my concerns for them, whether against Philly or moving forward in the Eastern Conference Finals, all season long, this offense has been so inconsistent, Danny. What is the reason for their their ups and downs um, that you've seen? I mean, it, it's a lot of it's just when you when you rely on Kawhi Leonard and you're relying on a player who you know doesn't have the elite playmaking in- instincts. You're you're running off of him, and it's it's a lot of him. It's a lot of Siakam, and it's a lot of kind of Kyle Lowry doing their own thing for. For stretches? I, I would say Lowry is their best passer. Yeah. I think one thing they could do is really try to attack, use him to attack Embiid and Redick. I think you'll see it all these series. I was going to get deep in the second round. The benches are going to shorten. The stars are going to play more minutes. And we're going to see more hunting mismatches. Like if you got a weak defender out there, attack him every single time. That's what it's come to in all these series. Game three for Sixers Raptors will be on Thursday night. Uh, I think one thing that might be a little overlooked in the series is the crowd in Philly. That'll be nuts like it was in Toronto. Uh, both two great home court advantages. Uh, it would not surprise me if that's heading back 2-2 when it gets back to Toronto. Um, Philadelphia did figure out some good things. and uh, It's going to be interesting to see what type of counter adjustments Nick Nurse makes. Let's move on to the Western Conference. Uh, the Warriors won 115-109 to to go up 2-0 on the Houston Rockets. As I said at the top of the show, John Gonzalez and Haley O'Shaughnessy had an instant reaction show uh, that should be in your feed that went up either late last night or early this morning. Charks, this game to me felt sort of like a repeat of game one, minus all the complaining about the referees with Houston coming in with a good gameplay. They are fully prepared for Golden State. It's what they've built for. They just don't have enough juice 
Yeah, I think the one change really was Austin Rivers coming back. He missed game one. And then you really could Rivers, see baby. Rivers, it's a Rivers Hive almost until Isaac Lee. But <laughs> like you really see the value of having more guys who can create offense against Golden State. Because Golden State is playing so many more faster wings against Harden, he has less space to operate. He needs help. Rivers was big. I think going back into game three. Our guy Daniel House has to step up. This is going to be serious. It always about Daniel House. I'm laughing about the fact that a series involving Draymond Green, Kevin Durant, Stephen Curry, Clay Thompson, James Harden, Chris Paul were like Austin Rivers and Daniel House. Every player matters to discuss. It's so great. I know you're right. It's like you're not wrong. I mean, it's like what more is there to be said about the key players in the series? It's the guys on the fringes who make a big difference. So, like you're right. It's just funny. (laughs) I just got a kick out of it. (laughs) With so many, so many of these stars kind of getting dinged up, though. Like, I mean, KD fell on his tailbone. Steph like had a finger come like out of his socket. Uh, It fell off. Yeah, it basically fell off. That was. Pretty James horrifying. Harden's eye got fell out of its socket. Yeah. Because so, Draymond has his fingernails sharpened. You know, once, I mean, I don't know how, I don't purport to know <laughs> how many games this is going to last, but like by the end of this, everyone is going to be banged up. Austin Rivers might be playing 45 minutes in game seven. <laughs> For all we know at this rate, you got to have Austin Rivers. And by the way, we have a, a Ringer uh, fan, a Rockets fan at the Ringer, Sean Yu, who I remember when Houston first got Austin Rivers, we were talking about it. I remember I was saying to him, I swear you're going to like Austin Rivers. He's going to be an important player off the bench. And Isaac's like, Austin Rivers sucks. And Sean Yu, I remember after game one when Rivers didn't play, he's like, we got to get Austin Rivers back. Houston needs Austin Rivers. Because to your point, Sharks, just to circle back here, having more shot creators on the floor is pivotal for Houston in the series against Golden State, uh, especially when in the starting unit, Chris Paul has struggled this series. Oof. And James Harden, the mid the floater has failed him um, in the playoffs after it was a very effective shot for him over the full regular season. It has failed him in the postseason against both Utah and Golden State, two teams trying to force him into that exact shot. And I think we can talk about Clint Capella too. That's someone else for Houston who's mm-hmm. given them pretty yeah. much nothing. That's Zero. really hurt them. Clint Capella has had his up and downs, Danny, against Houston, but a lot of downs right now. Yeah, I mean, at this point, the reason why Clint Capella was so important to the Rockets, obviously, is because D'Antoni really wanted to keep a center on the floor at all times, and yet he's had to go to P.J. Tucker a lot more than, you know, what the game plan probably said uh, in these past two games. He's just been an absolute zero. And, like, what, what do you do with Capella now? Charks, I know your answer. It's going small, correct? Well, because that's I'll, I'll circle back. So the reason they haven't done Tucker at the five more is because House has given them nothing. So right now, when they go Tucker at the five, they're playing like Rivers, Gordon, Paul. It's, it's not small ball; it's tiny ball. Like if you're playing Tucker at the five, you've got to have a, some wings with size around him to like cover up some weaknesses. And the problem enough for Houston is Capella was bad against the Warriors last year too. There's not really an answer for him in the series. He can't shoot. He can't create his own shot. He's not really a playmaker. There's just only so much he can do in his team that's this small and this athletic. So to me, it's finding more wings who can give you a chance to play in a medium series. Because I just don't see Capella really making an impact enough to make Golden State go bigger. I'm not sure he can only play smaller either. Capella frustrates me so much. It, it, so much because in the 2014 draft, 
he was so raw at the, the hoop summit the year prior. He just got totally beat up. Uh, and entering the draft, he looked like a total project. And he's gotten so much better over the years, so much stronger. His hands have gotten better. He's gotten so much more intelligent on the defensive end of the floor in terms of reading the game. But one of the things that hasn't changed, it seems like mostly against Golden State, is in my, in my 2014 NBA draft guide, I had one negative in there that says, quote, he plays small and that he avoids contact and gets pushed around inside. Should be fine when he gets bulked up. Well, he's not fine after getting bulked up. He still gets pushed around against Golden State. For a guy who is often the the biggest, strongest player on the floor, he does well, not often play like it. And, it. and it's really frustrating how he doesn't, both on the boards and finishing. Is he bigger and stronger than KD, though? Like, yeah, I feel like when KD rotates over, KD is kind of bigger than him. Yeah, he, he's at least wider, not necessarily well, longer. He, or, I mean, or, he's, or cer- he's certainly the biggest on the Rockets court. On the yeah. rocket side of the yeah. floor, doesn't always box out either. It's 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 just incredibly frustrating uh, watching him against the Warriors. I'm thinking there's hope for our Daniel House. You know, they're they're returning to Houston. He plays a little bit better on at home. I mean, he plays a lot better. Yeah, he doesn't play at all on the road. <laughs> and I think with you know them going to Tucker at the five more, that's where House kind of has to be in the game, like. He's played, I think, more than three-fourths of his minutes with Tucker. And so you're, you're basically pairing those two because it's combining, you know, girth, length, size, and athleticism, you know, to, to mitigate the damage of not having, you know, someone extremely big uh, in the front court. You know what was interesting? What they tried in the second half of that game? They actually played Harden on KD a little bit. And like Harden did okay when he didn't get switched off the screen. The numbers say uh, KD is 4 of 12 against Harden. And I kind of like that. Like Harden's got size. He has to play defense because they have not, not, not very many guys who can. And maybe him playing defense on some of these bigger wings for Golden State is something else Houston could try going forward. Can we talk about KD for a minute? Just about how extraordinary he's been the last six Oof. games ever, he's, ever since he said, do you know who I am? I'm Kevin Durant. He's been extraordinary, and not just on the offensive end of the floor where he scored 38 points, 33, 45, 50, 35, and then 29 last night. It's not just offense, but I thought last night's game, he was just absolutely stunning on the defensive end of the floor, defending multiple positions, communicating, energy, rebounding. He did everything on the defensive end of the floor on Golden State, and what was part of an overall great effort by that team led by KD and Draymond Green. Yeah, they put him on Eric Gordon at the start of the first half. So Eric Gordon had a really big game in game one. So they were like, oh, let's put KD on him. It's like, oh, it's a seven-foot guy who can defend all five positions. It's really <laughs> incredible. We're at a point where KD kind of insulates the team from itself. Like, he, he's just, he can do everything on the court. And so he kind of becomes the white noise, even though he's averaging, you know, 34 points on 50-40-90 splits. Uh, but him being able to do everything on the floor allows everyone else to be the specialists that they are. Like, they they are hyper-specialists, but they are, you know, they are specialists. Yeah, KD being well is really kind of covered for Steph not being himself. And that's a thing, I think, going forward for Golden State to watch out for, because obviously it's Steph and KD together to make them unstoppable. And Steph's been good in the playoffs, but he hasn't been kind of the offensive takeover guy that we are accustomed to seeing. Yeah, on April 26th, the Warriors' final game against the Clippers, that's when Curry turned his ankle and threw two games against Houston. I thought he's been really competitive defensively. I thought he's been great on that end of the floor, but his offense has not been there necessarily. He had that one dunk last night, which came out of nowhere. Um, but he doesn't seem like he's trusting his ankle. Uh, and maybe that's partially he's just 
you know, taking it a little bit easy for now as he gets himself fully back. But this is the third year in a row now that he's been hurt in the postseason. And if you're imagining a world where where KD leaves, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with Stephen Curry when he becomes the central focal point of a Warriors offense without KD, um, more, more similar to what James Harden and Chris Paul have to do with the Houston Rockets. I wonder how much he can handle that load moving forward, but that's a conversation for another day. It's just something in the back of my mind watching these postseasons where Steph just continues to get hurt. Yeah, the other guy we got to talk about real quick is Clay Thompson. So the reason Chris Paul has not played well in this series is Clay Thompson has totally shut him down. And like Absolutely. Clay, man, is such a monster because he got hurt too, but like it doesn't seem to matter with Clay Thompson. That dude is just a freaking machine. He's hurt. He's injured. He's going to play 40 minutes, shoot threes, D up your best player. He's just real. He's truly an incredible player. I think he is one of the guys. I just love watching him play, man. He's awesome. Yeah, that's the conversation will, if this series continues to go poorly for Houston, will be about how it's another choke job for Chris Paul. But I think Clay Thompson it deserves a lot of credit for that and making life difficult um, for Chris Paul with his size, as you said, uh, Charks, just to be able to. You wrote, you wrote something about Paul either earlier this season or, or last season about Paul's lack of size being one of his limiting factors in the postseason. I mean, his <laughs> limiting factor. I mean, he's a size DJ Augustine. <laughs> Speaking of Chris Paul, we, we had a, a, a great article um, that went up on the ringer yesterday. About, oh, yeah. Uh, Jordan, Jordan, Jordan Kahn. Yeah, totally. Jordan, Jordan Kahn on Chris Paul and, and Paul's will to win and, you know, the pros and cons of that. And, you know, we see both sides. Of that. I think last night I, I hated that play when Draymond Green had a dunk and Paul got pissed off and almost tried pushing Draymond's legs as he was hanging from the rim. Little moments like that. That, that doesn't help the perception of Houston. Um, never mind the, the, the leak, the leaking of their um, internal report about the officiating in last year's postseason. Enough for the referees though. Um, last, last night, the officiating was great. I, I, I don't, I don't want to talk about the officials. Do you, do you, do you have any thoughts on the referees? I, I don't, I, I think we've established on the corner three in, in past episodes that we are firmly ambivalent. <laughs> mm-hmm. Is there anything else that comes to mind that Houston can do this series? We talked about what they can do on the fringes with Daniel House, with Austin Rivers being a playmaker. Uh, it seems to me that one of the things D'Antoni is trying to figure out is who's that eighth guy. It's very rare that he plays 11 guys like he did last night. Shumpert played five minutes. Oh, my God. Nate, Nate, Worst Nate, Nate played ever. four. Shumpert took yeah, four yeah. threes in five minutes. It was incredible. It's awful. <laughs> you know, he, he, Fareed played five minutes. House played five minutes. It seems like... D'Antoni is searching for that eighth guy and he just doesn't seem to have him. And this sort of goes back to one of the things we talked about during the regular season with the unwillingness to go into yeah. the luxury tax charts yeah. in order to get that guy and who could help swing it, who swing a series, who could be that four or five or six point difference in a game. And Houston doesn't seem to have that guy that D'Antoni can trust. Yeah. I mean, they're playing two guys. They bought out on minimum contracts in rivers and freed a guy that's not the G league and house. Like, they're just working with a lot of scraps. It's hard when you're paying your best three players like a trillion dollars and you're saying luxury tax, they're just going to make room for the rest of your roster. Not to go full big picture with them. I think the series will still go deep, um, but it could go south quite quickly um, depending on what happens moving forward but with their changes this offseason. They have no cap flexibility. Chris Paul will be paid $44 million in the final year of his contract when he is steadily declining with the rest of the NBA closing the gap with their shot distribution, shooting more threes, getting more layups with Houston. This, this, this could go bad um, quite quickly. I, I don't think it will because you have James Harden, but it, 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 there's a road where it does. 
I just wonder if they move off Capella or, or Paul at some point next year or two. Because like you have Harden and you, you don't have any other pieces to move. Could either one of those guys, I think Capella could get something interesting in a trade. I wonder. Paul, I, wonder. I don't know. I, the contract. one thing with Capella though is the market was not strong for him in free agency, which yeah, is why true. he got the, the deal that he did. Um, I wonder if there wouldn't be a significant amount of interest in him. And with Chris Paul as well, I, I can't see, foresee a lot of teams lining up around the, the corner for his services either. Maybe a team like the Lakers, if they have nobody else they can turn to. Right. Um, it's hard to find many trades, is there, Danny? I, I was just uh, fiddling around with tr- the trade machine, and I'm extremely bad at this. Uh, but the first the first thought <laughs> that came to mind was, okay, who's a bad contract for a guy who's pretty young uh, who might be able to turn into like a weird D'Antoni like four? And I was like, Andrew Wiggins. Oh, wow. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> you Look, you do like Chris Paul and like Nene or something oh for Andrew Wiggins and like uh, Gorgie Jang. Would you do that? If I was in Minnesota, I would. <laughs> I mean, I, no, I wouldn't. But I, I would love <laughs> to see Andrew Wiggins have to adapt to Mike D'Antoni's offense. The king of the, the new king of the mid or maybe the jester of the mid-range. Yeah, don't uh, give him the Andrew king Wiggins. title. He's not a, not a <laughs> yeah, king. The, yeah, the mid-range jester and Andrew Wiggins. I would love to see him uh, try to adapt to Mike D'Antoni's offense. Who knows? Maybe it would help him. Um, I, I do not see it making a significant difference for Andrew Wiggins. But that, that's that's a co- topic for another day if this series goes poorly um, for Houston. Um are you feeling any less confident in Houston than we may have heading into the series for the chances of battling back and, and at least stealing one of these, or do they need to win both going back home to Houston? I think they got to win both for sure. And I mean, to me, I feel like it's just, it's just house. It's, it's weird to talk about this guy this much, but he's the key for them. <laughs> if he plays well at home, they have a chance. If he doesn't, I don't see much of a series. I think Houston had a split. Um, I, I picked Golden State heading into the playoffs, and then I switched to Houston after the first round, which was probably silly in hindsight. Um, yeah, the pick is Golden State. I, 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 th- I think they had a split. I think they had a split. Um, it, it it looks more like a a six game series to me moving forward. Uh, moving on to the Nuggets and Blazers, Charks. You wrote about the mighty Nikola Jokic today on the Ringer dot com. Jokic in game two and as part of these entire playoffs has just been absolutely tra- unbelievable, trans- man. Transcendent. He had 37 points in game two against game one against Portland. Uh, game two will be tonight. Um, Charks, can you fill us in a little bit on what your, your article was about regarding Jokic? Well, I think the main thing with Jokic, so game one against the Spurs, he kind of came out and played the usual Jokic game. He made the extra pass. He had 14 rebounds, 14 assists, but only took nine shots and Denver lost. And that's when I was like, oh, wait a minute. Jokic, he's such a good passer. People forget. He can score at will, basically, which he's been doing the last week and a half. Like, Jokic is seven foot 250. He can post up anyone. He can shoot over anyone. He's got great handles, great passing. When he wants to look for his shot, there are not many guys in the league who can guard him. And certainly not in the first round, it was Alders and Pirtle. And round two, it's been Canner and Leonard. None of those guys has a chance of guarding Jokic. And he seems to realize it. He's averaging 27 points a game over the last seven games on 50% shooting. And he's just been an absolutely dominant offensive player. Like he, He's doing things we have never really seen in the playoffs before. So there's a bunch of numbers you can look at. The one that like blew my mind. So right now in these playoffs, Jokic is averaging more than four threes a game, more than eight assists a game, and fewer than two turnovers a game. Nobody in NBA history has ever done that before at any size, at any position. So you've got a center who's just shooting threes, controlling the whole game on offense, 
never turning it over, and scoring almost 30 points a game efficiently. That's a special, special player. And it's been so much fun to watch. Yeah, and, and Charks, one of the like strong, strong points in your piece was just that, look, we're not comparing him to other centers. We're comparing, to, we're comparing his impact on the game to James Harden and Steph Curry. Like at this point, that's where he is aligned because there aren't any big men in the game who has his skill set and has been able to actually, you know, leverage that over the league uh, like he has. Well, he's a seven foot, 275 pound playmaker, essentially. I mean, we're talking about he, he is one of the faces of positionless basketball. He lo- if you just stand him up, he looks like he's going to be a traditional plotting center, but he is not that one, one bit. He is somebody, as you said, we're comparing him to the James Harden's of the world, the Steph Curry's of the world with his overall impact. And, and Charles, you mentioned some of the playoff numbers. You had a stat in, in your article about how he's posting numbers that few have ever done before. Uh, I looked at, looked this up this morning in terms of a a per possession basis. Um, only LeBron James and Nikola Jokic have ever averaged over 30 points per 100 possessions with over 10 assists and 10 rebounds per 100 possessions while, while playing past the first round. There's players who have done that in a single round like Grant Hill and, and Russell Westbrook, uh, but never has a player done this into the second round. And, he has a lot of cushion uh, to, for those numbers to drop a little bit moving forward, too. His, his overall impact, I think, all season long, he was a top 10 player. He was a top 5 MVP candidate. Um, and it's really no surprise that a lot of these things have translated to, to the postseason for him. It's just encouraging that they have, but not that they have, but that they've gotten better to Sharks. And the thing about it is, like the way he's playing, it just makes life easy for someone. He's such a unique player. So yes. what killed him in game one was that Murray-Jokic pick and roll. That murdered Portland. And the thing is, like, you can't switch that pick and roll. Because if you put a smaller guy on Jokic, forget it. It's over. That's yeah. two points or three points. So all of a sudden, Murray's coming off that screen. Either they're dropping back, he's getting space. They're doubling him, he's dumping it off to Jokic. Like, there's not an easy answer for that pick and roll. It's like the reverse of the Harden-Capella pick and roll. So normally, it's like, okay, we can't switch a screen because we don't want a slow guy on Harden. But against Denver, Portland's the op- Denver's the opposite. We can't switch the screen because we can't put a small guy on Jokic. And it just, like, there's not many answers for Portland this series on defense. I feel like this is going to be a shootout. Yeah, with that pick and roll all season long with Murray or sometimes Gary Harris as the screener for Jokic, but usually Murray, that two-man combination has been one of the most potent across the league. And I, as you said, Charks, you can't switch it because even if you do and and Jokic is a smaller guy on him, you probably have to double, which is opening up an easy kickout opportunity for Jokic from the post or, or either face-up opportunity from the elbow area. Jokic, is his ability to beat you Every single way on the offensive of the end of the floor is unlike so many players because you could use him everywhere. Use him as a high pick and roll ball handler at seven feet tall. Use him as a low post presence. Use him running off screens even. They use him off screens on dribble handoffs. He's used all over the floor. And I think Michael Malone deserves a lot of credit for empowering him within his role and pushing the limits of how some other coaches might restrict a seven-footer. I think Jokic has just constantly grown as a player, and we've seen a steady progress from him in the postseason. And really, in conjunction with Jamal Murray, his teammate, who also started off poorly, defending against Derek White, who locked him up early in that Nuggets Spurs series. Jamal Murray has continually gotten better, I think, with his shot creation and his playmaking. He's a guy who, entering the NBA, was somebody who was a scorer or shooter. But over time, Danny, I think he's become somebody who can make players around him better as well, like Jokic does. I Well, I'm I'm not like a huge Jamal Murray fan. Me neither, but he's gotten better, though, I think. 
Yeah, I mean, they're hiding him on D, which helps. That yeah. was a big adjustment in that San Antonio series. They started putting Murray on like Bryn Forbes, and they've kept it over into against Portland. They're hiding Murray on like I think it's like Harkless, and they're putting Craig and Harris on the two guards. Which, and we should talk about too. For much as we're going to praise Jokic, he got freaking murdered on defense too. It wasn't like they stopped pulling at all. That was a freaking shootout. <laughs> yeah, Damian Lillard. Uh, yeah, you're right. Damian Lillard, 39 points, uh, 12 of 21 from the floor. Uh, and Ennis Cantor as well. He was in killing that pick it. And roll. Yeah, he was great. <laughs> Cantor was great. And that's why when it comes to adjustments that Portland can make, I sort of wonder if Cantor's the guy that you just have to stick with in this series because Zach Collins and Myers Leonard cannot affect Jokic on the when, affect Jokic when he's on defense like Cantor can with his ability to roll to the rim. I, I know we've talked about Collins a lot on this pod, um, but in this series, is that something you tend to agree with, Charles, or are you going to Leonard or Collins? See, I think either one of those guys can't guard Cantor, so at least those two guys can shooting. To me, the guy for Portland is Rodney Hood. Like, I'm looking at this series for Portland. I'm saying they're going to probably score 120 points or 25 points. He had a big game one. I think, like, this is going to be a shootout. Aminu and Harkless, they're water pistols. Like, they can't score. And like, if you're going to have Jamal Murray out there, you got to attack him on defense. And I think if I was Portland, I'd probably start Hood. I might just play Dame, CJ, Seth Curry, and Hood together and say, let's call 150. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> you want to guard. I think one way to guard Denver is to double Jokic, make those bad guys, make, make guys like Craig shoot jumpers. So we're doubling the paint anyways, whatever. Let's see if you can hit more threes. My guys are your guys. Right. Because like when you look at the Nuggets roster up and down the, uh, up and down the roster, there are a bunch of guys who aren't necessarily consistent three-point shooters. I think their most consistent three-point shooters probably Malik Beasley. Um, but, you know, Gary Harris, Torrey Craig, all the guys along the yeah, line Will are Barton. just like, yeah, yeah, Will Barton, they're just not very consistent. And they they showed signs of just like being a bad three-point shooting team towards the end of the regular season. Um, so, yeah, no, I think that's sound. And I think the best way to, you know, combat Jokic is just try to run him off the floor. Get him tired, yeah. Yeah. Keep them, keep them, keep attacking as much as you can. In terms of Denver's inconsistent shooting, one of their best shooters, but also one of their inconsistent shooters is Jamal Murray. Uh, I do wonder if in, in game two tonight, one of the adjustments Portland could make is putting a menu and pulling him from Paul Millsap and putting him onto Jamal Murray. Maybe some more length bothers Murray. Maybe you're better able to switch that pick and roll. If Amino is starting out on Murray, maybe, maybe Amino is somebody you can trust on Jokic because of his size and length. Um, is that something that, that you think is worth trying, Charks? Uh, I know you, you mentioned instead of going to Roddy Hood, but with Amino's going to play. So like based off the amount of t- opportunity that he's going to get on the floor, is that something that you think they should try? It's worth trying. And I think I think as we were talking about, the big thing is like make these guys shoot. Like Torrey Craig, if this man can make like six threes, tip your hat to him. I'm not sure that he can. Yeah, and I think putting a guy with with size and length on Jamal Murray is, is something that's you know been an option and, and been a, a good option for a lot of teams ever since college you know uh one one of the things that i remember talking about the draft 2016 with charks one of the like key moments we keyed in on all the time was oh, OG yeah, Ananobi over uh Jamal Murray who made you know Murray's life a living hell so yeah, I, I, that's always going to be an option for a guy who doesn't quite have, you know, a great first step, doesn't really have the, the blow-by ability. If you can kind of shroud him, then I think that's that's a great option. Let's move on and talk a little bit of NBA draft to close out this podcast. Uh, with, with Nikola Jokic, he's one of the rare constructs that we haven't seen 
much in league history. We've seen a number of different centers. We have the rim runner in Clint Capello. We have the the offensive center in Ennis Cantor, who is who has limitations on defense. We have the playmaking center, a guy like Mark Gasol. We have the two way center in Al Horford, and depending on what your, the game demands, you could have a superstar who's just not healthy in Joel Embiid, but depending on what the game demands, the traditional center is sort of, you know, pass, you know, it's, it's fading away quickly. Um, the role of the center isn't quite as important in today's league, unless you're somebody like a Jokic or unless you're somebody that reaches a star level. Um, but there are a number of big men in this year's draft class. Obviously there's Zion Williamson up top, who we've talked about a lot in this podcast, one of the centers that I really like in this draft class is Goga Badatsi. Ooh, here we go. Uh, Goga uh, talk. Uh, for, from, from Georgia, six foot 11 with a seven foot two wingspan. And for what it's worth, he is not Nikola Jokic. He, he is not going to be a player like that. But I do think there's a lane for him long term as a player in this league who can be like a Nurkic type. Or as in the draft guide, we have a, sh- a shades of comparison as a shot blocking and as canter for him. I think with Badazzi, he is a very skilled offensive player who can pass the ball, who can space the floor, who's a good screener, who's a smart player. And he and one thing that he does that reminds me of watching Jokic when he was a prospect as well was he competes on defense. Um, I think over time, he's somebody that can be a player that is going to give you a lot on the offensive end of the floor and somebody who's going to be, be able to at least hang around on the defensive end. And Charks, I know this past week you've watched a lot of film on him as well. Um, do you view Badazzi with the current state of the league as a top 10 pick like I do? I have him ranked ninth. Or is he somebody that you're looking more towards in the middle first round, late first round? I think he's really good. I saw you have him as a top big in the draft. And you're, whenever I do my think, I think I'll probably have him up there too. So like watching Goga, to me, like he's like a weird blend of Vucevic and uh, Nurkic. Like he's a very smooth offensive player. His shot looks pretty good. He knows how to get to where he wants to go on the floor. And he has surprising ups. Like he blocks shots. Mm-hmm. He moves better than you think based off his like physical profile. I like him a lot as a player. I'm just, I really wonder. I think he's gonna be a really good player. I think maybe like 10 years ago, he might have been a top five pick. I, I just wonder, like, I feel like is he ultimately a platoon center in the playoffs? And how valuable is that? I don't know. I don't see him in this kind of series we're talking about today as more than a 25-minute-a-night player. Right. So how high do you want to draft a player like that in the lottery? I don't know. Yeah, that's that's that was exactly my concern. Like, is he good enough at, you know, being that kind of drop-back defender that you're comfortable with him playing in a game for 30-plus minutes? But, but circling back, I mean, the reason why, at least one of the reasons why he probably reminded you of of uh, Jokic a little bit is because he came from the same school, or he came from the same uh, team, uh, yeah, mega. mega basket, mega oh, yeah. X, you know, the, the colorful pajama uh, uniforms that go back like probably a decade now, a, a true like farmhouse for, you know, <laughs> international NBA talent. Um, yeah, I, I'm kind of more interested in him defensively and, and seeing how he develops in the NBA because he's really, really slow in space, but he moves really, really well in tight quarters. And so like when you combine that with like his shop, shot blocking ability there there's definitely a lane for him to be a really good kind of like you know a, a classic drop back defender in the vein of Brooke Lopez but you know how important is that going forward in this year's draft class, I think it's partially just the nature of the class. There's a lot of guards that can't shoot, a lot of wings that can't defend. And I just think if you're taking a quote-unquote best player available, I think he pre- presents good value for you um, in the middle of that lottery range. I have him ninth now, um, but would not surprise me if he moved up at some point. 
Yeah, I think he he could start 35 minutes a night in the regular season for a good team. He's a really good player. And to me, he's probably the safest of all the centers in this draft. Right. Yeah, I'm actually surprised that he didn't declare last year. Helped himself out by not, I suppose. Yeah, he's still really young, so. One guy who does get compared to Jokic and will inevitably heading into the draft is Jonte Porter. Who oh, I'm missed, so sad about uh, for, this. Yeah, uh, Porter. I know you're a huge fan of Porter. He is somebody who unbelievable passer has just tremendous vision. He's not quite an all-time level passer like Jokic, who is Jokic. Jokic is the most talented passer I've ever seen. And he has a chance to be the greatest passer at the big man position ever. Um, uh, I'm, Porter is not that, but he's a great passer for his position who can also space the floor from three uh, is a solid positional defender as well. Uh, Porter, but he did tear both he tore his ACL twice in the last two years uh, with Porter. He's somebody that I think you had ranked lottery, if I remember correctly, Charles, last year. Did you as well, Danny? Uh, before he, I, before, fringe, yeah, fringe lotto, I fringe. believe. Yeah, it, it, with his injuries in the nature of this class with a lot, not a lot of certainty, are you still viewing him as a first-round draft prospect without us knowing the full extent of his, of his medical? Or does that just knock him down a long way on your board, um, much like Harry Giles had experience with his amount of injuries in high school and college? I mean, doesn't it kind of have to? Like, Have you ever remembered a guy tearing his ACL twice in two years? Like That doesn't happen. Yeah, and, and it, it was partially because he, he basically rushed back um, onto the court uh, to, to, you know, get you know, his reps in for, for shooting and all that. And, and it just, it just, his, his knee just wasn't structurally sound at the time. It's really unfortunate. Yeah, he, he tore his right ACL on a scrimmage in October uh, last year and then retore it this March. Um, and as Danny said, he, he admitted that he, that he rushed back to the court, which is unfortunate. I, I think Porter has a chance to be a really good NBA player. I'm not sure he, if he's quite athletic enough to, to be a, and that's a, a the great thing. player. Now he's torn his knee twice. You never athletic yeah. to begin with. Yeah. I mean, yep. I, I am like kind of here for this next wave of NBA stars being like doughy, unathletic big men who are just <laughs> supremely skilled guards. Like that would be really, really funny to me. But yeah, it's 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 a lot of uncertainty. I don't think I would take a risk with him in like the first 20 picks. But like, look, if if a team really felt falls in love with his skill set, I can totally see him in the late, late first round. Just to wrap this up with a couple of other big men prospects, not everybody's doughy not, 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 not in this year's <laughs> class. Not everybody's like Vadatsi or Porter. There are no, a number of more traditional rim-running centers, namely Jackson Hayes from Texas, who's the big name. I believe we've talked about him on this podcast before. He fits more the Clint Capella role, Charks, except you have seen saw him at Texas this year. He's extremely raw on both ends of the floor. Yeah, he's like not very strong. He doesn't have much perimeter game. I think he'll be a good NBA player, but I'm a little surprised at how much hype he's getting. Because I feel like like Daniel Gafford is maybe not as good, but I don't think he's that much worse. And he's considered a late first round pick. So I feel like those kind of players are available. I don't know if I have to take a rim running center or top 10 anymore. Yeah, and even you know, besides Daniel Gafford, one guy that we don't have currently in the draft guide, what will be there in the update is uh, Nemius Keita from Utah State. To me, I, I like him more than Gafford. I think he's a better, more reliable defensive player, a better rebounder. He's not quite as bouncy as Gafford, who fits that that Clint Capella mold, as you just said. Um, Keita is more like a 
traditional type of center. Um, but I think his defensive prowess bodes well for him in the NBA um, coming out as a freshman. He's, he reminds me a little bit of a best case scenario, maybe a, a Steven Adams or Jacob Pertle type. Um, I see that type of lane for Kata. And in the late first round, I think that presents better value for you rather than some of the lottery hype that Jackson Hayes is getting. And then the other guy is Bull Bull, which who knows, right? Who knows? That's another guy. So he what played nine games and broke his foot. Shot 50% so, from three. Uh, yeah. yeah, Danny, I was about to say, what, what did he shoot from three? <laughs> Shot 50% yeah. from three. Yeah, yeah. Um, he, he is truly a unique prospect in his high center of gravity and his three-point shooting ability. And, you know, just the, the sheer size, the sheer length that he has will create problems for other teams. But it's like, does, will his body hold up is, is the biggest question. And, and one last thing on 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 the draft. Obviously, we're, we have a lot of time to talk about Zion, but I think watching Draymond Green in this postseason, the lane is there for Zion long term. He's not there yet, but the lane is there for him to be an impactful defender, not at the all time level like Draymond, but a notch or two below that who can just affect the game even if he's not scoring the ball. Um, and, and that's partially what makes him so enticing. As a as a prospect, as a future potential face of the league at 6'7", 285 pounds with his mobility laterally and his adverse, his verticality to block shots and alter shots, Zion Williamson has the physical ingredients, but he also brings the effort as well. The, 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 final, the final hole for him to fill is the intelligence on the defensive end of the floor. And at 18 years old this past season, it's no surprise he, he made a lot of uh, mistakes and rotations. But long-term, Charks, I think the lane is there for Zion on for his calling card, not just to be his offense and his dunking as everybody talks about in his playmaking, but for it to be his defense. Well, and the thing that I was noticing watching these playoffs with Zion, it's like if you can pair him with a pick and roll guard and he's setting with the Draymond Steph thing, like, because if you got like Trey Young and Zion, you can't switch that screen and Zion's going to go crazy. Like to me, that is what Duke didn't have last year. Imagine Zion setting a screen, the guard coming around, it can pull up from 30 feet. All of a sudden, Zion's getting free runs to the basket. I think that's going to be a lane for him right away where you get him the right team and the right system. He's going to be great almost immediately, I think. I can't wait. May 14th, draft lottery. Uh, we'll be talking more about the draft in the coming weeks and months as well as the NBA playoffs. But it's all we have time for today, guys. Thanks, Sharks. Thanks, Danny. Absolutely. Yeah, good one. Thank you for listening to the Ringer NBA show. Please give us a five-star rating on iTunes and share the podcast with your friends. Be sure to check out TheRinger.com as well. We have loads and loads of NBA content. We have Dan Devine on last night's Celtics-Bucks game and Charks on the greatness of Nikola Jokic. We'll have a group chat that will be in your feed late Thursday night or early Friday morning for your commute. Uh, thank you for listening. Special shout-out to Bobby Wagner for producing the podcast. Thanks again for listening. Peace out. Peace out.